The Run Culture podcast has always been a passion project. It was created to share stories and experiences, to educate runners and to grow the sport. Ultimately, to show that running is cool. The podcast has provided us all opportunities to listen and learn from some interesting people in the running world. Welcome to the Run Culture podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I am an all-out running fan and an accredited running coach, a marathoner myself and an experienced physiotherapist that specialises in treating runners. So, before we get right into the show, if you have enjoyed any of the previous episodes of the Run Culture podcast and they have added value to your life and you want to support the podcast going into 2021, then we have a Patreon page. It's linked to in the show notes. A small monthly donation will go a heck of a way to keeping the show alive. By doing so, you too can also feel fulfilled that you are doing your bit to promote and grow the sport. Also, for those runners interested or in need, links to my online strength and conditioning course for runners or run therapy, my physiotherapy clinic, are also in the show notes. Alas, enough from me. Here's this week's interview. Uh, welcome back to another episode of the Run Culture podcast. Uh, today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by Adrian Blinko. In July 2008, Adrian Blinko ran an astonishing 13.10, New Zealand's best ever time for 5,000 metres. His record still stands today. After growing up in New Zealand, Adrian went to Villanova College in the US. He spent 12 years in Philadelphia, where he was coached by three-time world champion Marcus O'Sullivan and ran professionally for Team New Balance. Adrian ran for New Zealand at the Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games and World Championships. During his time in the US, Adrian was also the assistant distance coach at Villanova University, where it was his job to identify and recruit young and up and coming running talent. After hanging up the spikes, Adrian returned home to work for High Performance New Zealand as the athlete development advisor, where he helps national sporting organisations identify and support up and coming talent. Adrian, welcome to the Run Culture podcast. Yeah, thank you. Happy to. Uh, to be here, always happy to chat running, um, especially with a, another runner. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to um, yeah start off with yeah a few fun questions to start. Um, I read an interview you did way back uh, in Falls Creek um, in 2004. It was your first year out from Villanova. You were training with Craig Mottram at the time and Melbourne Track Club, um, and. I think you had about five books on the go during your stay. Uh, I'm interested to hear, are you still an avid reader? What are you reading now? Um, and what are some of the best books that you've ever read and why? Yeah, um, yeah, sure. I mean, so I think I am, a, a, I enjoy reading. Uh, I'd say avid reader less so now just because of the, the time constraints. So when you're an athlete, you have a, a lot of downtime and really in, in its simplest form, you're training as hard as you, as you can um, and also then focusing on your, your recovery. So you do have a lot of time on your hands to read or whether it's reading or, or playing cards or um, other things that I'm, uh, I'm passionate about, uh, playing fantasy football, all those kinds of things you have more time to do as opposed to now where I've got um, a, a job, an office job, a family, and um, yeah, have to have to really focus on uh, those areas. So uh, yeah, I still do read. I recently, my my old man cleared out his um, bookshelf and dropped off a, a bunch of uh, old running books 
and uh, picked up two of them. And so it was kind of quite timely because I was reminiscing, I was reading them, running with the Buffaloes and, and Sub 4, so two books written by Chris Lear about the kind of US collegiate scene. And I hadn't really read them in, in 20 years, but it was great to kind of read those and then reflect on my own collegiate career. I, I really kind of enjoyed it and it's good timing with this with this podcast. Yeah, awesome. Um, uh, how did you get into running? Um, so like from the start, like what got you into running and um, I guess you've stayed with the sport for a number of years. Um, what did you love most about running, and what 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 were you so what was yeah your driving sort of force to stay with the sport, and what were you passionate about? Uh, yeah, so I, I got into the running really through my dad. So my dad would go down to the local running club, and so when I was six or seven, I'd, I'd tag along and, and run in the kids' races, and they were just sprints, and I didn't do too well, but I was just. Get, I was taken down there every week, so stuck with it. And then it wasn't until I was a little bit older and they added in like the 800 and I was doing all right. And then I could uh, do school cross country and I started to figure out that I was actually, one, I enjoyed the training and the and racing longer distances. Uh, so I just naturally enjoyed the sport, but then I also was starting to have some success and I if I'm honest, I enjoyed the success that I was getting and the credibility that kind of came with that. So the fact that I was good at, uh, enjoyed it and was good at it was a kind of a perfect match. And that uh, led me to focusing a, a lot more on it. And then kind of when I was uh, 14 or 15, started to drop away some of all the other sports that I was playing and, and just really channel everything into running. Yep, yep. And um, your dad was your coach growing up? Yep. Yep. Yeah, Simon. Oh, yeah, he, he was um, my coach all the way up until when I left to go to Villanova. Um, and it worked out really well uh, for us. Like he was, um, I guess, he really understood his role as a development coach. So took the long-term view and just set me up um, from a physical standpoint to do my best running when I was older. I did... Um, very little training when I was young, uh, especially compared to some of the uh, athletes that I was competing against in high school. I was probably only running um, maybe four days a week when I was 14, um, 15, and it wasn't probably until I was 18 that I started training every day, and it was quite low low mileage, um, and that just seemed to work really well for me. And... Um, yeah, consequently, all, all the way through my career, I was probably on the lower uh, scale of in terms of mileage for middle distance running. I had uh, quite a lot of injury problems, so I think it worked out pretty well that I started from a place where I was having some um, good success running comparatively lower than a lot of my competitors. And um, that kind of set the tone for the rest of my career, which um, I would have loved to do more mileage, but seemed to... Um, my body seemed to break down if I got uh, too high. Yep. Was that hard to do initially as a junior when you're watching all your competitors doing more than you? Um, was it hard um, initially when you were younger um, to, to see that that was the right approach? Um, yeah. Um, and especially in New Zealand where um, I guess the whole Lydia based training and, and it, um, you see all the older runners running uh, 100 mile weeks and yeah uh, yeah how'd you find that yeah I, I 
found it pretty well, largely because um, my dad re communicated really, really well around the purpose of the training and, and why I wasn't running the, the, the volume of some of my competitors. Um, so he explained to me that it yeah, would, would increase mileage o over time. And, and it was also probably fortunate that I was competitive even at, at the lower, even only running 30, 40 K a week, I was able to kind of compete with the, the kind of 14 or 15 year olds that were running kind of 80 miles a week. So it was a kind of a good battle between us. And sometimes I'd come out on top, sometimes the others would, but we're all pretty similar. Um, but I had a little bit more headroom, I, I think when I got older to increase that training and, um, yeah, so, no. but largely it came down to, to the communication from my dad explaining things and it resonated with me and made sense and um, so I was I was good with it. Yeah, and um, you were a pretty good junior, like off that low mileage, you were um, still winning um, some national championships as a, as a junior um, coming through the ranks, was that the case? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was, um, yeah, I would win national titles, uh, yeah, like New Zealand secondary schools, cross country and, and athletics titles, um, some of the time, not every year, but from kind of fourth form, uh, you know, so, uh, I guess that's year nine, for, um, yeah, Australia, I was winning some national titles, not all of them by any means. And there was a bunch of people that would kind of trade off wins, but yeah, I was competitive. Yeah. Yep. And then, uh, you ended up deciding to go to Villanova. How did that um, opportunity arise? And um, yeah, how confident were you that that was the right move to take at that time in your career? Um, yeah, so I uh, I finished high school and I was starting to get recruited from uh, by some US schools. So I'd run 14, 18 for 5K and 808 for uh, 3K. So decent times for um, someone in, in high school and uh, we just kind of decided that I wasn't getting recruited by the level of school that I wanted to be at. It was kind of the second or, or third tier NCAA school. So I decided to kind of bet on myself uh, to improve and, and kind of be able to choose the school um, from any of them in the US. And so um, I had a injury marred uh, first year out of out of high school, but then um, came back and, and ran significantly faster and ended up running 342 for 1500. So at that point, um, and, and I'd won the New Zealand senior 1500 meter championship. So by then it was kind of apparent that if I wanted to really challenge myself, I needed to look at another um, option than staying in New Zealand. And so the US was kind of the obvious one and um, and in terms of the opportunity, I, I reached out to four or five schools that I really uh, could see myself being at. Good coaches, good academics, and, and really strong programs. So um, they were schools like uh, Stanford, Notre Dame, Villanova, Providence, um, and had discussions with those coaches. And um, in terms of the decision, I, I was really confident with the decision because I took my time. I took over six months kind of researching, talking to the coaches, uh, gathering information that led me to being really comfortable with the decision that I made. And um, it was a really easy transition. So within the first week or two, stepping off the plane, um, I knew uh, for sure that I'd made the right decision. Just everything that I, I thought I was signing up for was there. and. Um, I had a great team, 
really good uh, teammate to a um, yeah, good friends, and then a, a, a coach that um, I had bought into his philosophy before I'd even arrived and had that belief that he was the, the right coach um, for, for me. Yeah, and um, yeah, like further reflecting on your time back at Villanova as an athlete, um, uh, like I've, I think I've heard you talk about like as soon as you arrived, uh, the standard of the other athletes on the squad um, was really high. Like there was a lot of depth on the team. Um, uh, yeah, as well as like just getting along with the coach and, and making some great friends. Um, what were some other aspects of that US opportunity that feel like they really sort of pushed your career along? Um, yeah, so oh, in terms of its impact on my career, uh, I think one thing that stands out is just the the mentality that um, I think a lot of Americans have is, is the confidence. Um, and so, yes, I was confident in my own ability, but I think going over there and having success and being immersed in an um, environment where a lot of people are very, very confident that rubbed off on me and then I started to kind of change what I thought was um, maybe possible to achieve in my, my time at Villanova. Plus I had, yeah, I, I, there was incredible depth in, within the team. Um, our first year there, we got six that um, were a bunch of 1500 meter runners, but we got six, the NCAA cross country as a team. And um, yeah, we had probably seven or eight guys that were running 345 uh, for 1500 or faster. So it was one of those things where you needed to um, show up and be ready every day at training. Otherwise, um, there was somebody that was there to be able to, uh, that would kick your ass. Yep. And um, yeah, so just that kind of, I guess it was the start of the professionalism that I took um, to, to my career is just doing the right things um, most of the time to ensure that you're ready to go because otherwise you're gonna get exposed. Um, so yeah, uh, but yeah, when I reflect back on my time, um, it, yeah, certainly some amazing races that, um, yeah, I was great, uh, yeah, really happy to be a part of, but mainly it was the um, just being part of that team environment with a bunch of friends, you're living on campus, so you're living with your friends, you're training with them, um, you're, you're, you're getting your degree, but it was just a, an awesome um, experience. And then to, um, yeah, have the opportunity of uh, winning some NCAA titles and winning uh, pen relays, which is very big for Villanova. Um, yeah, was really, really happy with my collegiate career. I think I, I, in, in researching for this chat, like I saw a photo of you um, crossing the line with a baton and it must have been, um, yeah, that win at the Penn Relays. Um, and the running shorts that you're wearing, um, they're a bit baggier than, than, um, uh, than you often see. You know, yeah, um, uh, yeah, can you remember that, that uh, win and, and, um, and, and what went into that? that relay and, and uh, yeah, the build up, like were you guys um, thought to be, you know, up there? Um, yeah, it must have been, you know, a memorable highlight from your time at Villanova. Oh yeah, absolutely. If, if not, it probably is the um, the number one highlight for me. Villanova, I mean, pen relays is just such a big thing for Villanova. It's just down the road and it's um, Got all the kind of history and, and heritage of uh, a sport, uh, yeah, an event that's been held for over a hundred years. Um, and then at Villanova, like our hallway by our locker room is kind of um, there's pen relay wheels that are hung up all the way down, so you're passing them every single day, and it's a, it's a really big deal. And we hadn't won 
a pen relays wheel uh, for I want to say like 10 or, or, or 15 years um, up until that point but we had a really really good team but Stanford also had a team with two Olympians on it Michael Stember Gabe Jennings um, and so they were probably the favorites but um, we had a, had a strong team and I just remember getting the bat in, uh, in, the, in the pack and, uh, and having an opportunity to win it in the last lap. And, uh, yeah, there wasn't anything that was going to kind of stop me at, at that point. It was, um, yeah, it, it had, uh, I guess, significance greater than just, yeah, the four guys trying to win. It was, um, I guess, the history of the program. Um, so, yeah, when I reflect, that's probably my number one um, memorable moment at, at Villanova, more so even than the NCAA championships. With the NCAA um, championships, um, you won a 3,000-metre title um, uh, as well. Uh, but then, like, I'd really like to... Because I've heard of a lot of Australians and, and Kiwis go over to the college system and a lot, a lot of, of them excel and they, they take their running to the next level. But then a, a few of them, you know, have, you know, uh, they, they struggle um, and they struggle with that transition. What were... What did you? How did you find that change of coaching? Because you're obviously going from a low mileage background into a system where it's a little bit more professional. Um, how did you cope with the transition? Can you remember if you got a few injuries or whether you were quite careful with that change? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did get injuries, but I got injuries when I was back in New Zealand. I got injuries when I was in the collegiate system. I got injuries. Um, after it was just um, yeah, uh, all the way through my career, I was kind of cycling between uh, managing different different injuries. Uh, but in terms of the transition, um, I think certainly my experience, and, and then uh, personally as, as an athlete, but then also what I saw as a coach recruiting um, Kiwis and, and Aussies over into um, the American system is um, you do your homework ahead of time to make sure that you're totally comfortable when it's it's your decision it's not your um your coach or your parents decision to go um you you make that call and once you're committed uh then uh, the transition is quite easy so you don't have foot uh feet in kind of two camps you're you're totally transition and buy into the new coaches philosophy and and the ncaa system and and what that means in terms of focusing on NCAA cross and indoor and outdoor and, and having to forego uh, sometimes World Cross Country or Commonwealth Games or those events that hold significance for Kiwis and Aussies um, and are at a similar performance level to the NCAA. Um, I think it, it, it's way easier when you just have one singular goal of, of trying to do really well at, at the NCAA. And I think that still, still fits well um, in terms of aspirations beyond uh, the collegiate system because if you're um, yeah if you're doing well at the NCAA level uh, and, and winning NCAA titles and you're positioning yourself pretty well uh, to, to kick on and, and do well at world champs and Olympics level so um, I think it's a good kind of development step in a transition it's not for everybody and some people are definitely better served staying at home but for, for those that believe that it's the best thing for them and and commit then I, I think it is, um, yeah, a, a good option. Um, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but we'll probably go back to 
your, your running career. But with your role as assistant coach um, at Villanova, um, you, you, had, you had a hand with the recruiting process and um, that, that was um, part of your role. Um, and you were um, involved with um, recruiting Sam McEntee and uh, I'm not sure like whether you were involved with um, Joy Williams and Pat Tiernan's um, uh, recruitment as well uh, to Villanova. Um, but I think the Sam McEntee uh, recruitment is pretty, pretty impressive because uh, I, I guess he didn't have heaps of results um, on, on paper um, and it was more a, a decision based on talent um, uh, ra rather than like, you know, on pa paper objectively, he was uh, leaps and bounds ahead of the pack. Um, how did you yep. know that he was gonna, gonna be um, a star? Um, yeah, I, don't, I don't know that we know, knew that he was going to be a star, but he was certainly someone that really interested us. And I think we were pretty fortunate. We'd had um, we'd had two or three years that I was coaching. So I started coaching in 2005 with Marcus and we'd had um, a couple of years where we'd had some um, misses. We'd, we'd, we'd made some uh, calls that we probably wouldn't have made had we had that learning. Um, back then and, and so McIntyre had kind of come along and um, and we'd also, so yeah, I recruited uh, Sam, I recruited uh, Matt Gibney, who was, um, yeah, incredibly successful for us. Uh, and then, yeah, I recruited Geordie and Pat, but uh, in terms of, um, yes, Sam McIntyre, um, we, we'd learned that, hey, it's not just about the times on, on, the, on a piece of paper, but he, he did at least have a time he'd run 347 for 1500 and and talking to him and his and his coach um it was pretty evident that he was not doing a whole lot of training so he's probably pretty similar to how i was at the same age um he had good speed and uh, i was fortunate to have a pretty good network of uh friends that in australia that i could tap into that either knew sam or or had raced him or at least seen him uh and we knew that he was a he was um, a pretty tough kid, and he had good wheels and, and good racing savvy, uh, and and had a lot of untapped potential. So um, we made the call on him over actually another Australian who'd run uh, maybe four or five seconds quicker, but we just felt better um, about Sam, and um, yeah, he'd run that three forty seven, and then I think within a year at Villanova we'd set up a race. Um, Geordie was Geordie Williams was in that race. Um, few others and uh, McAfee went around uh, 3.36. So um, we looked uh, we looked like uh, we were kind of recruiting superstars, pulling these guys that are running kind of 3.47 and then suddenly running 3.36. But um, yeah, we, we got it right on Sam. With um, your experience with that role and then eventually your um, role with um, High Performance New Zealand, um, I know this is probably a hard question to ask because it probably um, depends on the individual, but what seem to be some common common um, traits of those that seem to be able to kick on in the sport, um, or those that sort of uh, peter out and and then aren't as keen and sort of um, you know change course. Um, yeah, so I think um, probably something that we applied at Villanova that probably been validated by my time at High Performance Sport New Zealand. Um, we were looking for, or uh, well, Marcus was always wanting to know is the is the kid tough like uh is the kid is the kid a, a good person um is going to fit in well with the team and are they tough 
and give me examples of yeah of what we've seen or what we're hearing to see whether they're tough because I think when you're um, when you're traveling all the way around the world leaving your support network um, behind um, you've got to be kind of a good person to fit in with the team because they become your support network and then uh, when you're racing against a bunch of people that are all at a similar level um, you kind of have to have that toughness to get that performance out of you uh, day in, kind of day out, race in, race race out, even when you're not feeling that good, you can tough it out and, and deliver a performance. Um, and so that's probably similar to what we see some of our high-performance athletes is, is that consistency. So um, they're not having the wild swings of amazing performance one, uh, one week and in, in the gutter the next is uh, a consistency to their performance. Um, I think um, there's the obvious things of um, you, you see with young athletes, the pitfalls of either too much pressure from parents or too much training too early, but um, they're kind of obvious ones. But I think what we see is um, finding people that you trust uh, that can help guide you when you've got to make some critical decisions. So if that's after high school and then you're moving away to a university or moving out, out of home or into a different training group or you're going to change coaches or at, at, at critical times in your career, you're going to have to make some really, really important decisions and they're hard decisions to make. So having um, some people that you trust that can help um, help you to make those decisions um, yeah, is, is definitely beneficial. That's a good segue uh, to, like, I'd love to hear more about your relationship um, with your college and professional career coach, like Marcus O'Sullivan. Um, he, he too was a former alumni at Villanova with an accounting degree. Um, but yeah, you know, outstanding career himself as a runner, uh, as a 350 miler and 333, 1500 guy. Uh, what did you learn from Marcus? What was he like as a coach? What were some of his strengths? Um, yeah, well, yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone that's met Marcus uh, knows that uh, he's an upstanding kind of citizen. He's a he's a great person, uh, big heart, and so certainly I, I, I learned more from a life perspective than I, uh, from Marcus than um, I did from a, a runner. I learned a lot about running and, and coaching, uh, but I learned a lot more about, about life, um, just how to be a good person and um, care and, and, and be kind. And I think anyone that's yeah met Marcus uh, one time can see that. But when you get, uh, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to spend um, twelve years with him uh, almost every day, and um, that has a kind of a lasting effect. And I'm a better person for that time, absolutely. Uh, but in terms of coaching, um, it's related to his coaching philosophy. Probably is is trying to get a deep understanding of you as a person and, and as an athlete to figure out what's going to work best from a training standpoint. So there's no blueprint. Yes, uh, lactate threshold training is um, is big for Marcus, and that's what drew me to him in terms of a coaching philosophy. And that was um, not prevalent back in 2000 when I arrived at Villanova. I want to say there's probably 10 or 20 coaches in the whole NCAA that would base their training philosophy around uh, lactate threshold training. Um, Whereas now it's kind of standard for any 
middle, middle distance coach is utilizing those principles. So, yeah, um, but there is no real blueprint. Marcus has guys running um, 100 miles a week and he'll have guys running 30 miles a week um, and, and everywhere in between. Um, so it's about figuring out, um, yeah, what kind of uh, type of athlete uh, the the person is and, and what kind of training they're going to respond to. And um, Marcus is a relentless learner, so he's always learning from different sports, um, different fields. And so, um, yeah, he's always trying to get better, which is, a, a, again, a good example for an athlete trying to trying to get better and, and running, but also just a good, good example for people, um, yeah, trying to improve themselves. Oh, that's that's fantastic um and it, like it sort of um it sort of mirrors what you're saying about before about like having someone that you feel like you can um trust and and talk to when you've got some hard decisions in your career um as well if you've got yeah. like such a, a a strong relationship with someone um then you know and, and they know you so well then um yeah you, you're just in such a better place to make those hard decisions um yeah. 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 I mean, uh, yeah. The the real examples as well when you he, he's coaching. Like for for me, um, he would pull me out of the conference meet. He, he did it twice. Two two of the kind of six conference meets that I was eligible for, I, I didn't run just because he felt like um, I was tired from pin relays and and needed to um, train that week rather than race the conference meet. And and conference meets are pretty a pretty big deal for a. Um, yeah, a, a, a program, and um, it was yeah, look, looking after my best interests rather than um, yeah, the the interests of the program. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm interested also to hear like um, like uh, after graduating from Villanova, seven time All American, uh, um, yeah, with an accounting degree to, to boot. Um, you scored a New Balance contract and became a full-time professional athlete. Um, in 2003, I'm not sure if this is, you're still graduating from Villanova at this stage, um, but you ran a, a really quick mile, uh, 354 in Rieti. Um, yeah, w- did you realise that you were in this kind of shape going into this race and was this a surprise for you? And um, That would have been a Diamond League, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, although I think in those days it was called a golden league. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah showing my age. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember that race. It was it was my mile personal best. It came on pretty early in my career. Uh, I, I knew I was in good shape. Um, I'd, I'd run three thirty six for fifteen hundred meters. Um, I had gone to the Paris World Champs and, and uh, made the semifinals there. So I, I knew I was in, in good shape. The um, the thing with that race, though, I was sick going into it, so it was a good example for me uh, for my career when, when I get a cold. Uh, so I had pretty severe uh, head cold, uh, like insanely sore, sore throat, um, and was t- lining up. And Algarouge was in the race, and there was word that uh, it was going to be a world record attempt. So. I was there, uh, Mottram was there with me, and it, that was actually, he was coming off injury, and that was his first race of the season, uh, and he was going to do a 5K a few, a, a few days later. Um, so we were both um, 
suitably scared that it was going to go out. His first race of the season, I was sick. We were rooming together and we heard that uh, Alvarez was going to try and run like 343. Um, and so we were just going to go in and just see what, what happened. Uh, ended up not being that quick and uh, and we were hanging on. Uh, and, and I remember actually coming into the bell and Alvarez was right there, you know, uh, the legend that he is. And I was thinking, oh, actually, I'm feeling pretty good. Like, maybe I should just do a sprint and, <laughs> and get to the lead and say that I, I was leading Alvarez into the last lap. Um, I decided not to do that, but I hung on and, and ran a, a pretty good time. So, uh, yeah, I remember that, that race uh, pretty fondly. Um, yeah, it was a shame that yeah, I didn't run faster than that uh, the rest of, rest of my career, but it was a good one to run. How did Craig go that day? Uh, yeah, Craig um, struggled yeah. Uh, because it was his first race, but then he backed it up a couple of days later. Uh, we went to Rovereto, which is kind of a five-hour bus ride from Rieti, and I paced him in the 5K, and he got the Olympic qualifier. So quite remarkable because he'd only done maybe six weeks of training after probably six months off, um, and he ran sub-13.20 for 5K um, of, of six weeks training. Now, you seem to do like a fair bit of training um, with the Melbourne Track Club guys and um, and you um, seem to do a little bit with Craig Mottram here and there. Like, How did that relationship uh, form and develop after your Villanova stint? Uh, yeah, so uh, Marcus and Nick Badeau are, are good friends and um, yeah, Marcus and, and Sonia Sullivan are, are really good friends as well. So... Um, they keep in regular contact, and, and Nick was over for uh, a race at some point in my senior year, and I met Nick, and it was just a obvious um, well, choice for me. If, if Nick was willing to take me on as part of the Melbourne Track Club, I was going to jump at it, and I did. And um, yeah, I, I'd say, I think we said earlier that I had two coaches. I, I'd consider I probably had three coaches in my career, so certainly my, my dad, uh, Marcus, so I'd also consider Nick. Uh, a, a coach of mine um, and yeah I was super fortunate that he was um, willing to take me on and um, guide my career uh, it was really a really a leap, of, leap of faith on his part and he was taking a chance and he backed me into some races that I um, probably or I definitely would have had a, had a shot at getting into had it not been for Nick and um, I, I performed at a um, decent enough level and um, yeah, carried on with Nick for the rest of my career. Uh, yeah, and what was it like um, with, like, so was Nick your athlete manager and um, yeah, what was he like to work with? What were some of his strengths? Um, because um, Melbourne Track Club, they've um, seemed to have uh, just keep producing um, really good athletes in, or, you know, everyone who seems to run in the squad seems to, you know, really perform. Um, you know, you've got Stewie McSwain at the moment and Brett Robinson, um, uh, Jack Rayner, the list goes on. Um, yeah, what do you think, you know, like what's, what's your sort of feel of like why the squad seems to, um, yeah, really work well together and they seem, seem to produce results on, on race day? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I mean, Nick is the, um, I guess, the leader of, of the squad, but uh, I guess instills within the athletes, um, uh, I guess, normalises 
the fact that we're trying to do something special and um, we're not just trying to be the uh, best in New Zealand or the best in Australia. We're, we're trying to take on the best in the world and that pervades through the group and gives the group um, a level of confidence. Um, Nick has, um, yeah, uh, he, he cares about the athletes within the program pretty deeply and, and, and looks after them a lot. And, um, and part of that care is being uh, pretty honest with, with people around how they can improve. And he's had some pre pretty honest conversations with me um, in my time as an athlete that um, I really respected his opinion and it was tough to hear at the time, but uh, he was trying to make me a better athlete. And, and so they have a, a, performance, a high kind of performance standard that they're trying to achieve. And um, the group buys into that and, and works hard yeah, together yeah yeah nice and and then um like during this time like when you reflect back on it what what was life like um because you're pretty much living a life as a professional runner at this stage um and sponsored by new balance uh, i think a lot of listeners would um, be in, interested to hear um what life is like um on the circuit um as a sponsored athlete um like how did you get the new balance contract and and then what does sort of a a general day um look like yeah um yeah so i got a new balance contract when i graduated villanova i was um very fortunate to be with them my entire career uh, nick nick helped tee that up for me um he had, has obviously uh, really good contacts within most of the the good uh shoe companies and and he arranged that for me um in terms of the life i mean the life is is great if you're a runner and you get to do it for your job um there's there's nothing better really and and so yeah on the cert i mean there's probably um eight months where you're preparing and getting as fit as you possibly can to to race at least that was the case for me where i'd spend kind of uh eight months a year getting ready to run fast in europe with a little bit of a break in the middle to either race indoors or, or down in australia um and then when you get to europe you're um you're kind of living a bit of a life uh not too dissimilar than we've had uh during some COVID lockdowns where you're basing yourself predominantly at the house so you, you um you're training really really hard in the morning and then you're going home and, and you're recovering and you might go to the cafe for lunch, but you're spending most of the time at the house just uh, recovering for the, the next session. And you're going out for another run uh, in the evening and kind of rinse and repeat. And every week or so you jump on a plane and get to go and show um, show what you've got and all, all that training you did, you get to express it on the track. So. Um, yeah, it was a it was a great lifestyle, and uh, I was lucky enough to be able to live it um, for yeah close to ten years. And yeah. then it was time to uh, yeah to wind it up and uh, look at something something else. What were some of your favourite training destinations uh, when you reflect back on on those those times? Where did you really like to train personally? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, where did you? And then also. What kind of training do you feel like you really responded to in your career, personally? Yeah. Um, so in terms of training venues, oh, so I spent most of my time either at, at Villanova, living in Villanova. Um, even when I finished college, I lived 
uh, right next to campus. So um, at Villanova, there's two spots, Haverford uh, College, which is a local university that has an amazing kind of trail around it. And that's where we do all our uh, threshold sessions, mile repeats, um, and, and then Valley Forge Park, which is 20 miles of, of trails, and you go out there a couple times a week for your, for your long run. Uh, but I mean, probably the, the fondest memories in terms of training lo locations is, is Teddington. So when, when you get to, you've done all that training, you get into Teddington and there's Bushy Park and Richmond Park and, and the track, and uh, you've got the Melbourne Track Club uh, guys and girls that are, um, rocking up a few times a week to the track and doing harder sessions than I would, um, yeah, would have, would have done back at Villanova, would have been able to do by myself. Um, those are the kind of the, the locations that you cherish and you have, you have fond memories of. Yep. And then, um, uh, hailing back to 2004, how close were you to making the 2004 Olympics? Uh, yeah, I was, I was close. Uh, I don't know, you can get too much closer. I, um, I was 0.3 of a second off qualifying and um, I'd run within kind of 0.5, half a second um, on, on a, a number of occasions. So that was um, that was tough to, to deal with. Um, but it was kind of one of those moments of adversity that you need to kind of make a decision uh, how it's going to affect you. And, and like I said earlier, having good people in your corner, they can help you with your decision making. And I had, um, I had Marcus and I had Nick and I had my wife, um, family that were all kind of pretty similar in their message that were, um, yeah, it sucks, but you're going to have to get on with it and, and uh, make sure that the next time uh, you don't miss out and so that's gonna uh, yeah mean you're gonna have to train hard and, and keep going with this and i became a better athlete for it and the next year i set um yeah pbs in the 1500 and and ran significantly under that qualifying time so it's just just one of those things that didn't go my way um but yeah that's a shame but uh, yeah at least I, I i improved from there and, and then i managed to make the beijing olympics yeah, I could imagine when you're investing like so much time and effort into the one pursuit uh, that, yeah, when you're just missing out like that. And, and like you said, you had a career where you, you always had to sort of battle injury as well. I could imagine um, when you're putting so much time and effort in and, and then you have those down periods of injury or just missing out. Um, yeah, it's quite hard to, yeah, it, there'd be some hard times I could imagine. Um, yeah, to get through. Um, you ended up making 2008 Beijing Olympics. Um, and in the same year, you ran the national 5,000 meter record. Um, yeah, that you, you must reflect on that. And um, that must be a pretty special day. Um, can you remember whether going into that race, you, you thought it was on the cards and, and uh, yeah, some, some details like what do you remember when you reflect back on that day um yeah so i, I knew i was in, in good shape i'd had a couple of races in in europe prior to that and and in america and i was i was running pretty well and that actually um that season cons well, that was the longest that i've been injury free so i, I think I, I escaped any kind of significant time off for probably the 18 months preceding uh, the Olympics and, and, and that run a couple of, of weeks before the Olympics. So, um, 
yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence. I just, uh, I was really, really fit and I um, was in the right race at the right time. Um, it's kind of, it, it's part of it, it comes down to it. Like, I think there's, yeah, it was the New Zealand record. There've been a couple of runners recently. Um, there's Nick Willis or the Robertson brothers that um, probably could have gotten that record and, and run a bit faster had they been in the, at, at their, their peak fitness at, at the right time, but that those things don't always align. And for me, it did. And um, yeah, it was, it was good to, um, to, to break the record. What were some of the injuries that you often battled during your career? Was it a collection of different things, but, or was there one particular weakness that seemed to keep, keep coming, coming up? Yeah, it was usually um, tendon injuries. So, uh, post-tib injury in my ankle that would often get inflamed, um, patella tendonitis, um, just, yes, soft tissue tendon injuries that were just basically inflammation-based. Yep. Um, I really had to kind of listen to my body, and I got better through my career. I mean, there were a few, towards the end of my career, there were a couple of just acute, unlucky um, events where I rolled my ankle right before the London Olympics and it ended up splitting a tendon uh, in my foot and that's uh, why I couldn't run in London but that was just a freak kind of acute ankle roll um, equally uh, before one of the world champs I was running in Teddington and I was cooling down after a Melbourne Track Club track session and uh, ran into somebody and his elbow went into my rib and it cracked a rib um, so there were a couple of freak unlucky injuries there but uh the main ones were just um yeah inflammation based kind of tendon uh, injuries which i got better at managing throughout my my career with, with help of some um yeah good advice yeah um and uh yeah that's interesting to hear that um it, that it was the 18 months before you set the 5k uh record that you found was where you were the most consistent and you didn't have any injury interruptions um like that speaks volumes in terms of uh yeah the need to try to stay consistent um uh yeah i guess yeah. uh that that all sounds good as well but i think my best ever season when i was absolutely in the best shape of my life was 2011 where i'd um been injured for a good uh four or five months and was basically starting from zero fitness in, in january to the point where in june i was in the best shape uh, of my life, but that might have just been the accumulation of the training over the years that I was stronger and, and fitter. But that was certainly when I was, I felt like I was in the best shape and it was one of those things where the right race um, at the right time didn't quite line up, but I did run pretty close to, I think I ran 13, 17 that season um, in yeah, my third 5K and maybe 12 days chasing that Olympic standard. Um, I, I was in better shape then uh, even though I was starting from zero zero fitness in January, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty you know, interesting to hear as well. Because, uh, like, yeah, like you say, there's probably like an accumulative effect of all the training you've done over the years. But at the same time, I think as runners, we always think the more we do, the the better. And 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 sometimes having those little breaks, whether they're enforced because of injury whether that just reboots the body and it recovers a little bit and it, and then you go again. Um, yeah, it's, it's always hard to know why, but um, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear um, because I've certainly um, had a few experiences personally myself where that's been the case um, 
yeah, so sometimes like we can get so stuck um, in the grind of like just doing more as runners and, that, and, uh, and forget that sometimes, uh, yeah, sometimes those blocks of where we're taking it a bit easier, it can be good for us. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and, and that probably feeds into Marcus's philosophy about around, uh, I guess, readiness. So that, that season in particular, but certainly all the seasons, he really wants to make the transitions between the, the training, uh, so say between the volume work, the, the threshold work, and then the kind of the, the race pace work, those transitions aren't set against any kind of calendar, um, or ideally they're not there um, when the body is ready. And that was certainly the case that that season was, um, I was kind of uh, hammering him to want to start the track work early and he was holding me off, holding me off, saying I wasn't quite ready. And then all of a sudden within, a, uh, yeah, there's just one week where it, it all started to turn around and um, he said, yeah, okay, you're ready to do this. And then within two weeks I was on the plane to um, Nick and Collis and the rest of the guys in, in Teddington and um, racing uh, really, really well a week later. Yeah, yeah. Um, who, who are some of the, um, like reflecting back on your training partners, um, who, who are some of the um, best friends that you've made from your journey as a professional athlete in terms of training partners and, and some of the, uh, yeah, the, the tightest friendships that you've made and, and, and also who have some of the funniest, funniest people that you've trained with been? Yeah. Um, yeah, so in terms of Villanova, a uh, good friend of mine, Ryan Hayden, who we both came to Villanova at the same time with the same kind of uh, personal bests, and we got on really, really well, and he was the main guy that kept me honest every day. Uh, he came, he ran 342 and 148 in high school and was a uh, good across country and uh, big, tall, uh, strong runner from, yeah, from Canada. And, and so he and I were really close for those three years that I was at, at Villanova. Um, and you know, I think we both, um, yeah, we're both pretty instrumental to each other's kind of kind of careers. Um, then beyond Villanova, um, probably my uh, yeah, closest friend is Bobby Curtis, who, who uh, NCAA champion from Villanova. We didn't overlap at um, at Villanova. I finished, I graduated, and he started the next year. But just um, the level that he was at when he was at Villanova, we did a good amount of training. Um, together and then he joined Melbourne Track Club after after um, and he had a contract with Reebok and uh, ran with with Nick and um, and Melbourne Track Club for the rest of his uh, career or the bulk of his career um, and we're pretty good friends having uh, both lived in um, in Philadelphia he still lives there now with his family and and we keep in touch and um, he's he's pretty hilarious um, and then um, and then I think. And guys like Collis, Birmingham, we're, we're really close, and um, he's a he's a great guy, and um, yeah, was a good is a good friend. And then it's just that kind of brutal nature of running, where you have awesome friends that cycle in and cycle out of, of your life because they're in Europe and then they're not, or they're racing and, and then they're not, and um, so and there's just so many of those. Um, in terms of the funniest, um, yeah, so Bobby's pretty hilarious, but I don't think anyone. Um, yeah, everybody will probably put uh, Nick Bromley as uh, number one. Uh, he's uh, having him on tour uh, or in Teddington uh, certainly made the time a lot more enjoyable because it was yeah just constant uh, hilarity from from Bromley. Yeah, 
how pivotal was having a, a group like that um, along the on, along the way, um, just to help you get through the training and 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 the journey as a as a high level athlete. Oh yeah, I mean critical, and I know it's important to Nick to uh, have and Marcus uh, for for their programs having a good good people within the group, uh, kind of that no dickheads philosophy. People that get on with each other and, and want to support each other rather than bring um, others down for their own gain. Um, so yeah, there was never really a need. At, within Melbourne Track Club to tell somebody to lead a rep or um, in training. We're doing really, really hard sessions, harder sessions than I've ever done before. And, and those that were able to um, kind of sacrifice for the good of the group would just put their hands up and never have to be asked. And um, yeah, I think that that's something special that um, you don't always get, but that's just the culture that's been built within that, within that group is um, you're there for, for each for yourself but for each other um i'm intrigued like what are some of those hard sessions that you know perhaps have left a permanent scar um that you you just can't erase from your memory like is there anything that stands out um yeah i mean they don't leave a scar that like it's like a badge of honor almost oh, yeah like, yeah at the time but it was like momentary hurt for um being able to reflect on these crazy sessions uh for the rest of your life um Probably the, the craziest that, oh yeah, the, the, the best session I probably ever did was with Craig Mottram, uh, just the two of us uh, sharing laps and um, it was a mile jog a lap, 1200 jog a lap uh, and then repeat. So uh, mile 1200, mile 1200 and the miles were at 5k pace, so 416 and then the uh, 1200s were um, in 258, so it was 416, jog a lap, 258. 416, 258. Um, and that was by far, when I did that, that was pretty early on when, when Mottram was still part of Melbourne Track Club. So it would have been um, 2004, uh, 2005, that, yeah, somewhere in there. Um, and at that time I was kind of light years ahead of anything that I'd ever done on the track. And it took me four or five days to recover from that. <laughs> but uh, Craig was back in the park two days later doing something in Bushy Park just as impressive and then two days later he was in Richmond Park again doing something just as impressive um, and that was kind of the calibre of athlete that he um, he, he was. Um, I think that a couple of weeks later I paced him in a 800 metres because uh, he wanted to see how fast he could go for 800 and he, he ran, uh, I took him through 400 uh, all out for me pretty much and he ran 145 um, and that was right in the middle of 5k training so um, yeah he was a pretty phenomenal um, athlete with yeah really really good good range and um, yeah got yeah. the best out of me yeah um, yeah like you, I was going to say do you think that was um, quite good for you to see at the time um, to, to sort of push change your expectations of of, of you know what what you could do um, and then push you in training? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was at the time when I was still running, uh, I was still a 1500 meter runner and I was still close in those races and, and Craig was obviously one of the best in the world at the 5K, but able to match it with and beat kind of anybody in the world at that stage. So that, um, that kind of further instilled the belief that I could be competitive on the world stage, um, I guess, 
when you when I transitioned to the 5k I was probably more suited physiologically to the 5k not having uh, probably the the uh, level of speed to um, be able to run say 330 uh, I, was, I was more suited to the 5k but the challenge was um, there were just a whole bunch of guys in the world that were way way better than me so it's hard to kind of pump yourself up and think you're going to be one of the best and be able to compete for medals when you're 30 seconds behind so it's it, you have to kind of reframe and it became more a focus of getting the best out of what i could be versus in the 1500 you can still kind of touch it like it, it might be three seconds which is a big difference in, in in the grand scheme of things and it's a difference between winning medals or not but you're still right there and, and still have that kind of belief that maybe one day you could get the medals but um yeah it became pretty apparent that i probably might not have had the the speed endurance over the last 600 to match it with the guys that are running 328, 329. So that's why I transitioned to, to the 5K. Yeah. And um, like when you reflect back on Beijing and your Olympic experience, um, what, what, uh, what do you really um, hold, hold um, pretty special um, uh, from that experience, experience? Like what, what are some of the best memories from that experience? Um, yeah, I mean, it really was just the experience as a whole. So it's something that you trained for. So as soon as I got, uh, kind of realized that I was good at, at, at athletics when I was maybe 12, 13, 14, um, you're aware of what the Olympics is. And I had an uncle that went to uh, the Olympics and a, and a cousin, uh, one in rowing and one in uh, canoe racing. And so um, I was always kind of aware of what the Olympics was. And then you start kind of believing, okay, this is, um, this is the pinnacle of, of sport and I want to be there one day and to realize that um, so it was the experience the, the run was I'd say okay I probably ran um, at, like like most athletes um, you run um, at, at your ability or slightly below it's uh, very few um, that have a, kind of an out of out of body experience and run out of their mind it does it does happen occasionally but for, for the most of us you run Kind of to your performance level um and it's probably fair to say that i did that um yeah i had some really good guys in, in the race that i was in and it went out slow so that meant that uh we didn't have any time qualifiers and only um i think four people went through from my heat and i was seventh in my heat um sixth was mo farah um and then yeah there was a few guys that were a bit faster than us in the last lap but i was there to the last lap and um didn't quite have it like those other guys so the race itself was nothing special but the experience uh, was nice um and yeah like when you reflect back on your career like are you were you content with everything that you achieved um how hard you worked your eventual um results and times on on paper and the experiences that you had um and, and um yeah also was there any other highlights that um you sort of reflect back on your career um, that you sort of really cherish? Um, yeah, so I'd say I definitely was content with my career. I think anybody says, oh, hey, I wouldn't change a thing is lying. There's races there where I got tactics wrong or I made mistakes or um, that you wish you could have back because you know if you just made, uh, yeah, what one of the races, um, that I wish I could have back was the NCAA final 1500 meters, um, the last one that I, I ran in and Alan Webb and I uh, went 
crazy over the last kind of, well, from 300 to go to 100 to go, the two of us um, went kind of toe to toe and then reached the home straight and had absolutely nothing in the tank <laughs> and three miles past um, the two of us and had I just been content to relax in behind him, um, I think the result would have been different. Uh, that's one that definitely uh, sticks out and probably more so now because I just reread that that book, uh, like I said, at the start of the podcast, which details that uh, in every agonising detail. So that one still <laughs> and, and, and hurts me. And, um, and, and, there, and there's so many others, uh, but as a whole, as a, uh, my career, yeah, I, I, I'm extremely happy and never would have thought I uh, would have got to have the experiences that I did um, yeah, when I was coming up through the grades as a junior athlete. So yeah, um, yeah, pretty fortunate and, and, uh, grateful for all the help that I had along the way. Um, yeah, in 2012, uh, lucky, um, alluded to before you made the New Zealand team again for the 2012 Olympics at London, but unfortunately, um, you had that tendon injury of your ankle and had to withdraw. Um, after this, you, you joined High Performance Sport New Zealand and, um, you know, some nine years later, you, you're still in a similar role. Like, I'd love to hear more about your role um, with High Performance New Zealand um, and the developmental side of sport and, and what your role is. Um, yeah, so, yeah, when I retired, um, I... Yeah, I was in, after London, I was anticipating running a couple of more years, but I had already kind of said that if the right opportunity came along um, outside of running, that I would take it. And this one came along before the London Olympics, uh, where I decided that um, I'd, I'd work with High Performance Sport New Zealand. Originally, it was in a, as an athlete development consultant, so working with sports um, to look at yeah, how they can develop athletes to be successful on the world stage. Um, and that was a, a really rewarding role and I really enjoyed that. My role now has shifted a little bit um, similar in concept, but less around the long-term view of athlete development, but more um, in the overall view. So my, my role now is called a performance team leader. So I work directly with sports, uh, mainly Athletics New Zealand and Canoe Racing New Zealand. Um, with their high performance program uh, directly with kind of their high performance director and, and their coaches to try and um, support them to realize goals of um, winning medals at the Olympics in Tokyo and, and Paris and LA and beyond. Um, so yeah, really great role, uh, enjoyable, get to continue to work with sports and work with people um, that I knew through my, my running career and um, yeah, work with them to try and get the uh, get athletes to have success on the world stage. Uh, looking at the current crop of um, up and coming New Zealand distance runners, um, uh, who are, like it's probably a hard hard question to answer, but like who who are you really um, excited about? Um, there's probably a few, um, but yeah, who are you really excited about um, for uh, particularly the distance distance guys or girls? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've had a little bit of a resurgence recently on the men's side. We've had a, a bunch of uh, really um, talented and uh, athletes who work hard and want to be really, really uh, good. So it's uh, it's great to see. 
I'd say um, Sam Tanner, um, who I think you've had on the podcast before. Uh, great kid, or at least his coach, uh, yeah, you've had on. Uh, yeah, great kid. Um, the right kind of mentality. Wants to be really good. Um, and has a lot of talent and has some uh, really good closing speed uh, that yeah, will serve him well when he starts mixing it internationally. Um, and, and there's the other guys in there like that. So Jordy Beamish, um, he's the NCAA champion from Northern Arizona. Um, Theo Quacks, Dick Quacks' son. Um, all athletes that you know, I've had uh, chats with or coffee with and, and caught up with, and, and you can tell they... Uh, Want to want to do really well. They've all kind of intimated that they're gunning for my New Zealand record, which is um, <laughs> good, a good starting point for them. But hopefully, they can do even even better than that. Yeah, um, and and then uh, yeah, pretty uh, like I'm I'm so um, wrapped with your time um, uh, that you've dedicated to to this podcast. So like I'm wary of not holding you up much longer, um, but. Uh, Adrian, are you still still running at the moment, and um, and then uh, yeah, also do you, do you yourself do any coaching, or um, uh, are you sort of just you've just like you mainly just um, uh, sort of got your high performance role um, with New Zealand? Um, yeah, so uh, I started doing a bit of running. We went into lockdown related uh, to to COVID um, back in March of 2020 and so and but we were able to exercise so had a little bit more time on my hands not having to commute to work so got back to running kind of every day after probably eight years of just running two or three times a week for fun and, and general fitness and uh, fitness came back surprisingly quickly and I'd always said I was going to run a marathon um, and by the end of those kind of seven weeks of lockdown, I figured I wasn't ever going to be any fitter than I was right now. So I started targeting a marathon in August, Rotorua Marathon, which kind of has the most heritage uh, of any New Zealand marathon. And I started to get fitter and fitter. And uh, the more I trained, obviously, the, the harder I pushed. And it came to Rotorua Marathon. And we had a, a, a second lockdown, which meant that I couldn't go to Rotorua. So the next one on the horizon was the Auckland Marathon a couple of months later. So uh, pushed even harder and was doing some 32K runs at a fairly decent clip around 330Ks and feeling pretty good about it and um, even did a 5K time trial and um, yeah, started to feel my oats again a little bit. <laughs> and as you'd expect, really started to push it when I started to get um, full fitness back and um, then the body gave up on me and I, uh, <laughs> subsequently I have a labral, a labral tear that likely requires surgery. Um, so it's kind of curtailed my uh, semi uh, comeback to run a, to run a marathon. Oh, bugger. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, in terms of coaching, I do a little bit of coaching. I coached um, I co for the Rio Olympic cycle, I coached a, a 5,000 meter runner, Lucy Oliver, and she ran in the Olympics in Rio, and I, I love that. Um, and I'm, I'm coaching a development athlete right now, but um, yeah, it just when the circumstances work for the athlete and, and uh, my situation, then I'm happy to help, help out, but also acknowledging I don't have those um, training groups and I'm not a, a full-time coach that can invest 
um, 40 hours a week into, into coaching. So in a lot of cases, the athletes are better served working in with those groups because of the training environment that they, um, yeah, they entail. Yep. But the right fit for me and, and the athlete, and sometimes that is, then um, I do do some coaching, yeah. And how did you cope with the, tra- just last one, how did you cope with the transition from uh, full-time athlete and, and, and the, the life that that entails and, and then transitioning out of the sport? Um, have you found that your role um, with High Performance New Zealand and, and doing a bit of coaching here and there and, and has filled the void? Um, or, or have you sort of, and then also your family and, and everything like that? Have you just changed focus? Or yeah, how have you coped with that transition um, uh, from being a full-time runner and, and that was you know, your be-all and end-all and then um, yeah, transitioning into the next phase of your life? Yeah, it was a... I'd say it was a fairly smooth transition, but only because of the patience of my wife. It took me a little while to truly comprehend uh, what the transition from full-time athlete to uh, full-time high-performance sport New Zealand and uh, father uh, meant. And so my wife was really patient, but also um, probably similar to uh, Nick Badeau, quite honest in terms of... <laughs> areas that I could improve and so I'm very yeah, uh, lucky to have a, a patient wife and uh, that aided in the transition uh, going fairly smoothly. I was lucky that my uh, job still kept me working uh, in areas that I was really passionate about and were um, yeah, interest areas for me so that, that certainly helped. Uh, but it was yeah quite different, and I, I did keep training uh, for the first few months because that's just kind of the life that I I knew, and then um, slowly I realised that there was no real need for me to still keep logging 100k a week and doing sessions. Uh, they were pro- probably better served spending that time uh, with family um, and yeah changing my priorities. So it was um, yeah not too bad of a transition. And um, yeah, it's all it's all good now. I have my priorities straight. And and last one, um, do you think Tokyo will go ahead? Um, do you have any inside word there? Like, uh, what are your um, yeah? What have what have you heard, and what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, certainly no inside word. We yeah. get the same kind of reports that uh, the media gets, and often the media gets it before we do. I think it. Um, the party line is that it, it's going ahead um, and they're doing what they can to have countermeasures in place to make it safe. So, um, look, I, I hope that it's um, deemed to be safe enough to go ahead because um, I mean, that's what we work for, but uh, mainly it's what the athletes have kind of dedicated their lives to being able to express all that training um, in the field of competition. And it would be great to be able to uh, watch that and watch my friends that are still in the in the sport being able to go and um, compete against the world's best. So from a fan, I certainly hope that it goes ahead. Um, from a HPSNZ employee uh, working with some athletes that are um, doing really really well, and and I'm confident we'll have success at the Olympics. I hope it goes ahead, but um, only if it's it's safe for for the world. So. Um, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll, I'll keep reading the reports just like uh, <laughs> every other athlete will and 
fingers crossed that we can get on top of this COVID thing and um, get back um, to how, how the world was 18 months ago. Well, thanks so much, Adrian, for the chat. Um, uh, there, there were so many pearls of wisdom um, and it's such a great insight to, to hear um, your journey and, and the things that you sort of took away from um, your journey as being like, especially your advice in terms of, uh, you know, what sort of constituted to, uh, or you feel like um, helped um, uh, success in the sport in terms of a young athlete not overdoing it with their mileage and then, um, you know, having people that they trust around them for hard decisions. And um, yeah, just hearing a bit of insight into yeah some of some of your um, greatest memories um, and some of the highlights of your career. So yeah, thanks so much for the chat. Yeah, no, thank you. It was good to reflect on it all, and um, yeah, I'll uh, keep listening to your podcast and the other people you have on, and uh, keep up the good work. No, thanks.